Chapter Two, Part One of The Pit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Laura Dearborn's native town was Barrington in Worcester County, Massachusetts. Both she and Paige had been born there, and there had lived until the death of their father, at a time when Paige was ready for high school. The mother, a North Carolina girl, had died long before. Laura's education had been unusual. After leaving the high school, her father had for four years allowed her a private tutor, an impecunious graduate from the Harvard Theological School. She was ambitious, a devoted student, and her instructor's task was rather to guide than to enforce her application. She soon acquired a reading knowledge of French, and knew her Racine in the original almost as well as her Shakespeare. Literature became for her an actual passion. She delved into Tennyson and the Victorian poets, and soon was on terms of intimacy with the poets and essayists of New England. The novelists of the day she ignored almost completely and voluntarily. Only occasionally, and then as a concession, she permitted herself a reading of Mr. Howells. Moderately prosperous, while he himself was conducting his little mill, Dearborn had not been able to put by any money to speak of, and when Laura and the local lawyer had come to close up the business, to dispose of the mill, and to settle the claims against what the lawyer grandiloquently termed the estate, there was just enough money left to pay for Page's tickets to Chicago, and a course of tuition for her at a seminary. The Cresslers, on the event of Dearborn's death, had advised both sisters to come west, and had pledged themselves to look after Paige during the period of her schooling. Laura had sent the little girl on at once, but delayed taking the step herself. Fortunately, the two sisters were not obliged to live upon their inheritance. Dearborn himself had a sister, a twin of Aunt Wes who had married a wealthy woolen merchant in Boston, and this one, long since, had provided for the two girls. A large sum had been set aside, which was to be made over to them when the father died. For years now this sum had been accumulating interest. So when Laura and Paige faced the world alone upon the steps of the Barrington Cemetery, they had the assurance that at least they were independent. For two years, in the solidly built colonial dwelling with its low ceilings and ample fireplaces, where once the Minutemen had swung their kettles, Laura alone thought it all over. Mother and father were dead. Even the Boston aunt was dead. Of all her relations, Aunt Wes alone remained. Paige was at her finishing school at Geneva Lake within two hours of Chicago. The Cresslers were the dearest friends of the orphan girls. Aunt Wes, herself a widow, living also in Chicago, added her entreaties to Mrs. Cressler's. All things seemed to point her westward. All things seemed to indicate that one phase of her life was ended. Then, too, she had her ambitions. These hardly took definite shape in her mind, but vaguely she chose to see herself at some far distant day an actress, a tragedienne, playing the roles of Shakespeare's heroines. This idea of hers was more a desire than an ambition, 
but it could not be realized in Barrington, Massachusetts. For a year she temporized, procrastinated, loath to leave the old home, loath to leave the grave in the cemetery back of the Methodist Episcopal Chapel. Twice during this time she visited Page, and each time the great gray city threw the spell of its fascination about her. Each time she returned to Barrington, the town dwindled in her estimation. It was picturesque, but lamentably narrow. The life was barren. The New England spirit prevailed in all its severity, and this spirit seemed to her a veritable cult, a sort of religion, wherein the old maid was the priestess, the spinster the officiating devotee, the thing worshipped, the great unbeautiful, and the ritual unremitting, unrelenting housework. She detested it. That she was an Episcopalian and preferred to read her prayers rather than to listen to those written and memorized by the Presbyterian minister seemed to be regarded as a relic of heathenish rites, a thing almost cannibalistic. When she elected to engage a woman and a hired man to manage her house, she felt the disapprobation of the entire village, as if she had sunk into some decadent and enervating lower empire degeneracy. The crisis came when Laura traveled alone to Boston to hear Mojeska in Marie Stuart and Macbeth, and upon returning full of enthusiasm, allowed it to be understood that she had a half-formed desire of emulating such an example. A group of lady deaconesses, headed by the Presbyterian minister, called upon her with some intention of reasoning and laboring with her. They got no further than the statement of the cause of this visit. The spirit and temper of the South that she had from her mother flamed up in Laura at last, and the members of the committee, before they were well aware, came to themselves in the street outside the front gate, dazed and bewildered, staring at each other, all confounded and stunned by the violence of an outbreak of long-repressed emotion and long-restrained anger that, like an actual physical force, had swept them out of the house. At the same moment Laura, thrown across her bed, wept with a vehemence that shook her from head to foot. But she had not the least compunction for what she had said, and before the month was out had said good-bye to Barrington forever, and was on her way to Chicago, henceforth to be her home. A house was bought on the north side, and it was arranged that Aunt West should live with her two nieces. Pending the installation, Laura and Page lived at a little family hotel in the same neighborhood. The Cresslers' invitation to join the theater party at the auditorium had fallen inopportunely enough, squarely in the midst of the ordeal of moving in. Indeed, the two girls had already passed one night in the new home, and they must dress for the affair by lamplight in their unfinished quarters and under inconceivable difficulties. Only the lure of Italian opera, heard from a box, could have tempted them to have accepted the invitation at such a time and under such circumstances. The morning after the opera, Laura awoke in her bed, almost the only article of furniture that was in place in the whole house, with the depressing consciousness of a hard day's work at hand. Outside it was still raining. The room was cold, 
heated only by an inadequate oil-stove, and through the slats of the inside shutters, which, pending the hanging of the curtains, they had been obliged to close, was filtering a gloomy light of a wet Chicago morning. It was all very mournful, and she regretted now that she had not abided by her original decision to remain at the hotel until the new house was ready for occupancy. But it had happened that their month at the hotel was just up, and rather than engage the rooms for another four weeks, she had thought it easier as well as cheaper to come to the house. It was all a new experience for her, and she had imagined that everything could be moved in, put in place, and the household running smoothly in a week's time. She sat up in bed, hugging her shoulders against the chill of the room and looking at her theater gown that, in default of a clean closet, she had hung from the gas fixture the night before. From the direction of the kitchen came the sounds of the newly engaged girl making the fire for breakfast, while through the register a thin wisp of blue smoke curled upward to prove that the hired man was tinkering with the unused furnace. The room itself was in lamentable confusion. Crates and packing boxes encumbered the uncarpeted floor. Chairs wrapped in excelsior and jute were piled one upon another. A roll of carpet leaned in one corner, and a pile of mattresses occupied another. As Laura considered the prospect, she realized her blunder. "'Why and oh why,' she murmured, "'didn't we stay at the hotel till all this was straightened out?' But in an adjoining room she heard Aunt Wes stirring. She turned to Paige, who upon the pillows beside her still slept, her stocking around her neck as a guarantee against drafts. "'Page! Page, wake up, girlie. It's late, and there's worlds to do.' Page woke, blinking. "'Oh, it's freezing cold, Laura. Let's light the oil stove and stay in bed till the room gets warm. Oh, dear, aren't you sleepy? And, oh, wasn't last night lovely? Which one of us will get up to light the stove? We'll count for it. Lie down, sissy dear,' she begged. "'You're letting all the cold air in.' Laura complied, and the two sisters, their noses all but touching, the bedclothes up to their ears, put their arms around each other to keep the warmer. Amused at the foolishness, they counted, to decide as to who should get up to light the oil stove. Page beginning, Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. But before the count was decided, Aunt Wes came in, already dressed, and in a breath the two girls implored her to light the stove. While she did so, Aunt Wes remarked, with the alacrity of a woman who observes the difficulties of a proceeding in which she has no faith, "'I don't believe that hired girl knows her business. She says now she can't light a fire in that stove. My word, Laura, I do believe you'll have enough of all this before you're done. I advised you from the very first to take a flat.' "'Nonsense, Aunt Wes,' answered Laura good-naturedly. We'll work it out all right. I know what's the matter with that range. I'll be right down and see to it as soon as I'm dressed. It was nearly ten o'clock before breakfast, uh, such as it was, was over. They ate it on the kitchen table with the kitchen knives and forks, and over the meal, Page having remarked, Well, what will we do first? discussed the plan of campaign. Landry Court does not have to work today. He told me why, but I've forgotten. And he said he was coming up to help, observed Laura. And at once Aunt Wes smiled. Landry Court was openly and strenuously in love with Laura, 
and no one of the new household ignored the fact. Aunt West chose to consider the affair as ridiculous, and whenever the subject was mentioned spoke of Landry as that boy. Page, however, bridled with seriousness as often as the matter came up. Yes, that was all very well, but Landry was a decent, hard-working young fellow with all his way to make and no time to waste, and if Laura didn't mean that it should come to anything, it wasn't very fair to him to keep him dangling along like that. I guess, Laura was accustomed to reply, looking significantly at Aunt Wess, that our little girlie has a little bit of an eye on a certain hard-working young fellow herself and the answer invariably roused Paige. "'Now, Laura!' she would cry, her eyes snapping, her breath coming fast. "'Now, Laura, that isn't right at all, and you know I don't like it. And you just say it because you know it makes me cross. I wouldn't have you insinuate that I would run after any man or care in the least whether he's in love or not. I just guess I've got some respect. And as for Landry Court, we're no more nor less than just good friends, and I appreciate his business talents and the way he rustles round and he merely respects me as a friend, and it don't go any further than that. An eye on him, I do declare, as if I hadn't yet to see the man I'd so much as look at a second time. And Laura, remembering her Shakespeare, was ever ready with the words, The lady doth protest too much, methinks. Just after breakfast, in fact, Landry did appear. Now, he began with a long breath addressing Laura, who was unwrapping the pieces of cut glass and bureau ornaments as Paige passed them to her from the depths of a crate. Now, I've done a lot already. That's what made me late. I've ordered your newspaper sent here, and I've telephoned the hotel to forward any mail that comes for you to this address, and I sent word to the gas company to have your gas turned on. Oh, that's good, said Laura. Yes, I thought of that. The man will be up right away to fix it, and I've ordered a cake of ice left here every day, and told the telephone company that you wanted a telephone put in. Oh, yes. And the bottled milkman. I stopped in at a dairy on the way up. Now, what do we do first? He took off his coat, rolled up his shirt sleeves, and plunged into the confusion of crates and boxes that congested the rooms and hallways on the first floor of the house. The two sisters could hear him attacking his task with tremendous blows of the kitchen hammer. From time to time he called up the stairway. Hey, what do you want done with this jardinaire thing? Where does this hanging lamp go, Laura? Laura, having unpacked all the cut glass ornaments, came downstairs and she and Landry set about hanging the parlor curtain. Landry fixed the tops of the window moldings with a piercing eye, his arms folded. I see. I see, he answered to Laura's explanations. I see. Now, where's a screwdriver and a stepladder? Yes, I'll have to have some brass nails, and your hired man must let me have that hammer again. He sent the cook after the screwdriver, called the hired man from the furnace, shouted upstairs to Page to ask for the whereabouts of the brass nails, and delegated Laura to steady the stepladder. Now, Landry, directed Laura, those rods want to be about three inches from the top. Well, he said, climbing up, I'll mark the place with the screw, and you tell me if it is right. She stepped back, her head to one side. No, higher, Landry. There, that's about it. Oh, or a little lower. So, that's just right. Come down now and help me put the hooks in. They pulled a number of sofa cushions together and sat down on the floor side by side. 
Landry snapping the hooks in place where Laura had gathered the pleats. Inevitably his hands touched hers, and their heads drew close together. Page and Mrs. Wessels were unpacking linen in the upstairs hall. The cook and hired man raised a great noise of clanking stove lids and grates as they wrestled with the range in the kitchen. Well, said Landry, you are going to have a pretty home. He was meditating a phrase of which he proposed delivering himself when opportunity afforded. It had to do with Laura's eyes and her ability of understanding him. She understood him. She was to know that he thought so that it was of immense importance to him. It was thus he conceived of the manner of love-making. The evening before, that palavering artist seemed to have managed to monopolize her about all of the time. Now it was his turn, and this day of household affairs, of little domestic commotions, appeared to him to be infinitely more desirous than the pomp and formality of evening dress and opera boxes. This morning the relations between himself and Laura seemed charming, intimate, unconventional, and full of opportunities. Never had she appeared prettier to him. She wore a little pink flannel dressing sack with full sleeves, and her hair, carelessly twisted into great piles, was in a beautiful disarray, curling about her cheeks and ears. "'Didn't see anything of you all last night,' he grumbled. "'Well, you didn't try.' "'Oh, it was the other fellow's turn,' he went on. "'Say,' he added, "'how often are you going to let me come to see you when you get settled here? "'Twice a week? Three times? "'As if you wanted to see me as often as that. "'Why, Landry, I'm growing up to be an old maid. "'You can't want to lose your time calling on old maids.' "'He was voluble in protestations. "'He was tired of young girls.' They were all very well to dance with, but when a man got too old for that sort of thing, he wanted someone with sense to talk to. Yes, he did. Someone with sense. Why, he would rather talk five minutes with her. Honestly, Landry, she asked, as though he were telling her a thing incredible. He swore to her it was true. His eyes snapped. He struck his palm with his fist. An old maid like me, repeated Laura. Old maid nothing, he vociferated. Ah, oh, he cried, you seem to understand me. When I look at you straight into your eyes... From the doorway, the cook announced that the man with the last load of furnace coal had come and handed Laura the voucher to sign. Then needs must that Laura go with the cook to see if the range was finally and properly adjusted, and while she was gone, the man from the gas company called to turn on the meter, and Landry was obliged to look after him. It was half an hour before he and Laura could once more settle themselves on the cushions in the parlor. "'Such a lot of things to do,' she said. "'And you are such a help, Landry. It was so dear of you to want to come.' "'I would do anything in the world for you, Laura,' he exclaimed, encouraged by her words. "'Anything. You know I would. It isn't so much that I want you to care for me. I, I guess I want that bad enough. But it's because... I love to be with you and, and be helping you and, and all that sort of thing. Now all this, he waved a hand at the confusion of furniture, all this today I just feel, he declared with tremendous earnestness, I just feel as though I were entering into your life and just sitting here beside you and putting in these curtain hooks. I want you to know that it's inspiring to me. Yes, it is. Inspiring. It's elevating. 
you don't know how it makes a man feel to have the companionship of a good and lovely woman landry as though i were all that here put another hook in there she held the fold toward him but he took her hand as their fingers touched and raised it to his lips and kissed it she did not withdraw it nor rebuke him crying out instead as though occupied with quite another matter uh, landry careful my dear boy you'll make me prick my fingers ah there you did he was all commiseration and self-reproach at once and turned her hand palm upward looking for the scratch mm, she breathed it hurts where now he cried where was it oh i was a beast i'm so ashamed she indicated a spot on her wrist instead of her fingers and very naturally landry kissed it again how foolish she remonstrated the idea as if i wasn't old enough to be you're not so old but what you're going to marry me some day he declared oh, perfectly silly landry she retorted aren't you done with my hand yet no indeed he cried his clasp tightening over her fingers it's mine you can't have it till i say or till you say that some day you'll give it to me for good for better or for worse as if you really mean that she said willing to prolong the little situation and it was very sweet to have this clean fine-fibred young boy so earnestly in love with her very sweet that the lifting of her finger the mere tremble of her eyelid should so perturb him mean it mean it he vociferated you don't know how much i do mean it why laura why why i can't think of anything else you she mocked as if i believed that how many girls have you said that to this year landry compressed his lips miss dearborn you insult me oh my exclaimed laura at last withdrawing her hand and now you're mocking me it isn't kind no it isn't it, it isn't kind i never answered your question yet she observed what question about your coming to see me when we were settled i thought you wanted to know how about lunch said page from the doorway do you know it's after twelve the girl has got something for us said laura i told her about it oh just to pick up lunch coffee chops i thought we wouldn't bother today we'll have to eat in the kitchen well let's be about it declared landry and finish with these curtains afterward inwardly i'm a ravening wolf end of chapter two part one